Good afternoon and welcome to Virtualization in the Crosshairs, leveraging threat intelligence to enhance your cybersecurity posture. A health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by CrowdStrike and TD Cinex Public Sector. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments anytime in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Excuse me. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go with our main panel discussion, about 35-40 minutes, featuring Chris Paravati, CIO at Northeast Georgia Health System, Teresa Tontat, VP, Associate CIO and CISO for Texas Children's Hospital, and Todd Felker, Executive Healthcare, Healthcare Strategist with CrowdStrike, and then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Lots of good stuff to talk about today. Chris, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. Thank you. Hi, I'm Chris Paravati. I'm the health system CIO for Northeast Georgia Health System. Uh, we provide care to over 100, uh, close to 2, 2 million uh, patients in Northeast Georgia, uh, five hospitals, uh, three SNFs, uh, and over 80 ambulatory locations and a handful of medical destinations. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. Teresa? Hi. Hi, everyone. My name is Teresa Tonthad. Um, I'm a vice president at Texas Children's. We're located here in Houston, Texas, in the medical center. Um, we are the largest pediatric hospital in the U.S., and we care for both children and women. Uh, we're excited that this is the first year that we are number two um, on U.S. News World Report for Best Children's Hospital across the U.S. So kudos to all of the hard work that and positive outcomes that we've done here for Texas Children's. We are a hospital and a health plan. So we have Texas Children's Health Plan and the hospital both located in Houston, Texas. We have about 900 plus beds, and we serve about 590,000 members across the, the state, and we have roughly 6 million patient encounters on an annual basis. Very good, Teresa. Thank you. Todd? Yeah, I, thanks. Thanks, uh, Chris. I, I'm, from, uh, I'm from CrowdStrike. I've been at CrowdStrike for almost a year now. Before that, I'd spent nearly 30 years in various uh, roles in, in, in healthcare. And about the last 17, I was at a, at a health system in Southern California where uh, the last eight years there, I was building a security program and where I became CISO. And during that time, I was uh, CrowdStrike's first uh, healthcare client. Uh, back in 2015 and uh, ended up becoming their second MDR client uh, in, in 2018 uh, for managed detection and response. And I was just such a fan of the technology that uh, I was excited to have an opportunity to come to CrowdStrike and help other healthcare organizations. Very good, Todd. Thank you. All right. Um, Todd, we're actually going to start with you. Uh, what is the latest threat intelligence indicating what are the bad guys going after now and why? Yeah, so it's it's interesting how the adversary continues to evolve. Just as we've been building our security programs and our security posture for years, they're coming up with new and better ways to get around our defenses. And uh, ransomware as a service in particular has become uh, quite a moneymaker for the adversaries. Um, 
they're making over a billion dollars a year now. It's a billion dollar industry. It's it's tough to fathom. Um, and what we've really seen in the last few months has been really, really alarming. And what I've been speaking about to executives and uh, at a couple conferences the last few months is how they're targeting uh, the VMware hypervisors now. And, and it's not a vulnerability or anything you can do to patch it. It's really just um, a goal of theirs once they get access to target these systems. And, and you might say, why? And, and that's because there's so many guest operating systems uh, in the virtualized environment. Uh, we've seen health systems where their entire EHR is is just gets uh, data gets ex exfiltrated and they they encrypt they encrypt the the systems very quickly because they can launch a single script to go after all of the guest VMs on a particular uh, hypervisor environment and uh, it's very efficient for them. They can do a lot of shock and awe, a lot of damage very quickly and efficiently with some of the tools that that they've uh, that they've built around their uh, initial access and and lateral movement tools, and then now they have these tool sets that are designed to compromise the virtualized environment. And it's particularly devastating for healthcare. And healthcare is a particularly strong target because of the value of of healthcare data. So it's uh, it's it's a constant game of of trying to help CISOs and security teams um, address the latest risks that and the threat uh, that are happening. All right. Very good. Very good. Um, Teresa, do you have any thoughts on what, what you're hearing and what you're seeing, or do you want to comment on what Todd has said? No, I am. I agree with what Todd's saying. Um, and thank you, Todd. And we have, we have partners that provide us threat intelligence as well. And they're saying very similar things that you're talking about, Todd, with the hypervisor and VMware environment. I think um, I think that's just going to be the start of a intense sophistication of the threat actors of going going all in and going big, right? They know organizations heavily depend um, depend on tier zero type core technologies, and VMware is one of that. So I think the the importance for security leaders and CISOs, whether they're in healthcare or not, is to invest in the, the right security protections and alerting capabilities so that when that does happen into their environment, their security operations team is alerted timely um, and make it more difficult for the threat actors to gain access to the critical assets that they're, they're looking to um, to exploit or to encrypt the data to, to take the hospital's um, operations down, uh, which will then feed into the main objectives of them to begin with. Chris, your thoughts on uh, what you're hearing or seeing? Yeah, you know, very much the same thing. And, and you know, while these continue to evolve, they're really exploiting the basics, right? Um, patching, uh, uh, privileged access accounts, um, third-party systems, um, you know, uh, VLANs that are are not architected well. And and so the threat intelligence, um, and, and we do similar uh, to Texas Children's, we have some partners that are bringing that in, whether it's antivirus or software solutions or through our SIM or SOC. Um, you know, it, it always comes down to 
Um, do you have the right architecture? Did you pick the right partners? And uh, are, are you patching? Are you managing your privileged accounts uh, tightly? And, uh, you know, I think you're going to continue to see uh, these threat actors are, are very focused, where a lot of times we're covering a large horizon of systems. And, uh, you know, I think you will see, you know, okay, well, we'll address VM and, and we'll get that managed. You'll find another attack vector that's, that's soft uh, or through a third party that, that has a vulnerability that's just not yet been uncovered. Todd, is, is VMware, where, what are they doing about this? You know, they don't, that's why I, I mentioned they don't really have, it's not like there's a vulnerability that they need to patch. Um, I think that uh, there's been some intelligence that uh, I've seen just recently where, um, where China is now getting involved. And of course, China has different goals with the hypervisor. They're not there to uh, to necessarily uh, apply a ransom. They're not going to go after a ransom. They just want persistence and they want to they want to maintain persistence and, and exfiltrate data. That's kind of what they, they're all about. And they're doing some interesting things with what we call the, the VIBs, these, these, the VMware um, software modules where they're actually forging them and then replacing legitimate modules with some of their own to maintain persistence. And that's kind of scary. And I think VMware should probably do something about that in order to uh, improve security uh, and, and awareness on on those types of changes happening in the environment and or, you know, and, and there is there is uh, some documents that they've released on things you can do. And one of the things we're doing at CrowdStrike is is just offering some hard some hardening guidelines. It, I kind of feel like as as security practitioners, we always have to evolve and there's always more we have to do. And and uh, I was at HISAC last week and I was talking to a guy uh, who used to work for VMware. And he and I asked him, I said, how many of your customers that you used to talk to would ever go and configure the firewall on the hypervisor beyond how it's configured out of the box? And he's like, no one. So that's like one of the guidelines we're offering now. From CrowdStrike, we offer a, a, a virtualization assessment. But one of the things you can do is go into, uh, have your VMware administrator go into the firewall, and it, it has only certain ports open, like SSH and some non-standard ports for like vCenter to manage the hypervisor, and go in and configure that so it doesn't just allow those connections from any IP and configure it to just allow a couple IPs and then maybe configure a jump box for your admins to leverage and then only allow like the IP addresses of a couple jump boxes and then really lock those down with MFA and, and only allow your administrators access to it. So you can reduce the attack surface. And so I think when these things happen, they force security uh, leaders to uh, to create new layers of of security around whatever the the end zone is for the adversary. You know, it's interesting, um, Chris. Let me just pose this to you. So, the way Todd describes it, it sounds to me like situations in the past where certain uh, products have come out with a um, a password set to something extremely basic, and if you didn't change it, you were extremely vulnerable. Uh, and and so this sounds like an out of the box thing that's not quite good enough in terms of security to roll it out out of the box, but nobody's changing it. They get it, they roll it out. Um, does it sounds like a similar situation? Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we we've always suffered with that, right? Um, I need a new PAC system. Let's you know get that installed and and let's not worry about enhancements and features and functions because we got to move on to this new acquisition or we've got a, this office opening and so we end up with you know a lot of shelfware is what my CFO calls it. Um, but what you're really starting to talk about is the the architecture, right? And and this idea that you can't just throw and go, but you really need to be deliberate in your architecture. And as you you think about the virtualization world, whether you're you know you're virtualizing servers uh, or you're starting to migrate towards um, you know cloud solutions and cloud to cloud solutions, you're gonna have to take a step back and say how is the overall architecture um, being built and how do you how do you narrow that attack surface how do you contain those units um, you know simple things like you know what's your encryption strategy um, what are your standards and and these are things that in the past you know the business has maybe driven uh, a, a unique need uh, with a unique solution that you just you can't have the tolerance for it anymore, uh, and that's 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 certainly what we're seeing. I, I'm sure you know as Todd shared and um, you know Teresa will share. It's very similar. Mm-hmm. Teresa, what do you think about that concept of of things uh, being put out to market that really need to be tweaked before they're rolled out? Which is kind of like to me, that's what Todd described. That the way it's coming out and handed to you is not good enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have anything significant to add to what Chris said other than, you know, it's it's part of our operational excellence and disciplinary processes, right, to to go live with new technology, to even, even do a pilot or a POC on your production environment and kind of forget about it and deprecate it or harden it as aligned with your technical security standards. And it's not just your security standards, it's standards around availability, reliability, infrastructure type standards. Um, I think a lot of organizations may fall victim to that based on drift, right? And based on just losing focus. So it's so not only is it important to have it baked into the process to um, bring on board new technologies, um, I think it's, you know, if organizations can, they should invest in not just hiring third parties, doing pen testing and red team assessments to let them know what they don't know, but invest in capabilities to do ongoing um, security validation uh, within your environment, because we already know it's people, process, and technology. And the and it's not always going to be 100% of the time that that default password gets changed appropriately or that service account is bolted in the right place with MFA. So having that governance and compliance level of oversight, I think, is very critical and um, pays dividends once we have that in place. Very good. So, Todd, are they considering rolling it out differently or is this just going to have to be on the onus is on the health system to make sure they've made the adjustments to this product? Yeah, it's it's interesting how it, 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 things just evolve, right? I mean, if you go back to 2017, if you had MFA for remote access, you were pretty good. Like you really didn't have, you know, for 2017, 2018, you probably didn't have a lot of people like like attacking that and getting past it. And that was that was good enough. They'd go somewhere else where somebody didn't have MFA. 
now it's like now they're they're going to get in like and, and MFA is bypassed multiple ways to Sunday now. So you have to create these layers that you didn't used to have to focus on. And healthcare has just always been operating so lean uh, that, uh, you know, the security teams are always struggling to get enough uh, talented individuals and large enough teams. And how do you get security baked into all the, the things that you're rolling out? Like Teresa was saying, it's, it's uh, you need security to be in line and looking at everything from, you know, from beginning to end as you roll something out. And uh, I, I think that in healthcare in particular, we were very, very targeted. We have very, uh, very in-demand data and, uh, and we don't have big margins that, you know, the margins are getting squeezed, especially with the payers. And so, and staffing has been a challenge, uh, especially uh, since COVID. I mean, uh, everyone is dealing with, with staffing and and uh, and and skill shortages, so it's a uh, it's kind of a perfect storm, especially now that the adversary is escalating uh, techniques. I mean, I, I think there was a uh, in 2021 they say 66 percent of healthcare uh, has had a ransomware attack. So that's the majority of the organizations have had to deal with this, and um, their primary business is to provide good patient care, and now. They have to deal with this, the, the threat and, 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 a, and constantly adjusting, uh, their posture and, and, uh, and understanding where the risks are in their organization. So, you know, we're talking about the importance of having security early on in the process. Um, and we know that, that they're the layered approach and there's lots of ways to do that with governance, with, um, reaching out to the business owners and making them understand that we're not going to be an impediment, but we need to be an important part of the process. So you, there's the carrot in the stick. It's, it's, it's built into process, but it's also trying to convince them that this is something they need to do. But still we know, and I know from conversations that things fall through the cracks, things wind up on the network that, that CISOs find out after the fact. Um, and generally the approach that I've heard is, not not a sort of a punishment, meaning we're going to pull it off because you did wrong, but okay, let's look at it. Let me see if it needs to be adjusted. Let me see what's going on here. Um, so why, Teresa, let me start with you. Why do things still fall through the cracks and what can security professionals do to try and make that happen less frequently? Um, I think I kind of mentioned it in the response earlier is that mistakes will happen because we did we depend on people and processes to 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 deliver work right so at, at Texas Children's we I think we're very fortunate that we have support from the top down on cybersecurity all right cybersecurity program and making sure that all of our digital technologies remain resilient and available so that we can continue to provide care um, to our patients and members so I'll put that first. Um, we do we do ongoing scanning and validation within our environment, within our data centers um, regularly. Um, we also strategically put our lead architect over our architecture board as an individual that is a cybersecurity expert. So they have architects within our architecture board that are very familiar with data, very familiar with interfaces, cloud, compute, storage, network. But the lead 
is a cybersecurity professional. Hmm. Um, so we don't focus all of our architecture design on just security, but I, I don't know if Chris or Todd mentioned it, is security by design is something that we embrace very heavily within our IT department at Texas Children's. Nothing goes live without going through the architecture board, without going through a risk assessment. Now, there are those cloud third-party you know, solutions that the business may say, oh, you know, it's an easy click-through. I can bring that up and start sending data. There's, there's control points, if you will, that mitigates that from happening from our operations as well. But there are things that could fall through the cracks. And that's where on our 24 by 7 monitoring, specifically on third-party services and cloud technologies, it's very critical for us because we, we read the news. Many many of the ransomware attacks or breaches are happening to hospitals, third-party vendors that are providing a critical service to us, right? I mean, we saw the payroll issues with Kronos. We see lab organizations for pathology going down that's impacting hospitals. So a lot of it is not necessarily attacking. I mean, there are organizations attacking hospital infrastructures to take down their Epic or their Cerner environment, but we're seeing a, a big trend on third parties being attacked that are significantly impacting the way we provide care to our patients. Um, so we, we have vendor risk management committees um, that review ISO certifications, SOC 2 type 2 assessments on an annual basis, just to make sure that the original risk assessment um, levels, if you will, high, medium, or low, continues to stay low for us. Um, but we also recognize too is even if you spend billions of dollars of cybersecurity, you're not immune, right? There's no silver bullet. So the more relationship building that we have with our third parties and making sure that they are consuming all the right updates, doing the right thing, heavily invested in the cybersecurity program, it helps mitigate the risk of an impact to, to us um, long-term. Sounds like a pretty good program, Teresa. Very, very impressive. Um, Chris, she covered a, a lot of stuff there. Um, the continual monitoring is is very interesting rather than sort of, um, you know, uh, episodic uh, pen testing and things like that. A continual monitoring, security by design, um, vendor risk management committees that are continuously looking at vendors, uh, again, not just when they come in the door, uh, but sort of that continuous ongoing review uh, and rating them according to the risk. So lots of interesting stuff there, Chris. Um, when 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 people are having trouble, um, when CIOs and CISOs are having trouble uh, and more more things are getting on the network without review than should be, you know, there's the occasional one-off, but it's happening more often than it should be. Do you have any advice or, or your thoughts on why that can happen when it does happen and your advice to how that can get stopped? You know, I, a couple things. I'll give you two answers. Um, from a technical perspective, you know, we're going to we're going to watch the network. We're going to trend that behavior and we're going to look for anything that is outside of that behavior. Um, from there, we'll go to our sim and and we'll turn it off. Right. We're going to quarantine it um, and then and then, you know, respond to it. But often I, I would tell you the business side of this is the technical and the security are table stakes for the CIO. We need to be aligned with the business very closely. We need to anticipate what needs they have, and we need to start designing and and running alongside the business uh, to provide those solutions. 
And so we've, we've spent a lot of time. We really reorganized IT around, uh, around our customer and not around technology to really get at this of what is the need that you have? What, what is on your, you know, on your goals? What are you anticipating? And then even through COVID and other uh, challenges, um, anticipating needs and, and, and meeting that customer before they, they really ask for it. And I think that, that they're just trying to do their job, right? They're just trying to get something done. Um, it, you, you gotta, you gotta meet them where they are, I guess is what I'm trying to synthesize. Very good. Chris Todd. Oh, Teresa, go ahead. Jump in. Uh, just to add to Chris, I think he's, he's spot on there is that if you leave it up to just the business on what digital technologies you want, your portfolio is going to be thousands plus solutions, which which really just increases your surface, right? Attack surface. Um, I'm pretty sure most IT organizations and hospitals, we already have an arsenal of very, very robust solutions that operations can leverage. And um Having that seat at the table and speaking with the clinical and the business units to really understand what their problem statements are, instead of asking them what technology they want to enable and turn on, we're the experts in that area, right? We can provide them with something that's already deployed in our data center, completely secure with all of our technologies and layers of defense, or, you know, ask them to use our existing Epic or Cerner environment that has modules that we've spun up. And they just need to configure it lightly and do training. A lot of it is more organization change management than necessarily the technology component. So as CISOs and CIOs, if we can make sure that we have a good grasp of our solution portfolio and we have comfort level, it's secure and well-maintained, then it helps truly reduce that attack surface that that the threat actors are actually looking for because you're good. The more applications you have, the more resources you need to maintain mm-hmm. to keep it here. And in the world that we're living in right now with labor shortages, especially in cybersecurity talent um, and resources, we need to be very strategic on where do we have them focused on. That's a great point, Teresa. You know, you tie the vendor risk management uh, application bloat and and application rationalization and all that have as tight a portfolio as possible because there's so much risk directly tied to each third party, which we know. So Todd, your thoughts on what you're hearing? Oh yeah, thanks, thanks Anthony. Um, yeah, it's it's a constant um, struggle to maintain the the highest levels. I mean. Uh, Teresa and Chris are uh, obviously running some some very good programs and 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 trying to stay on top of everything, and it's just it's constant like cat and mouse game, right? Um, we're we're just hearing that the adversary is getting faster. It's not a matter of if they get in, but when. And whereas you know years ago we'd have the hard perimeter, and uh, before the perimeter started to evolve with remote workforces and you know, and COVID and everything associated with that. And, and now we've got to create all these layers. And, uh, and our, our Overwatch team released a report in September that said that the adversary uh, is now clocked at uh, 84 minutes, 84 minutes to get privilege and start lateral movement, which is uh, many times faster than it was just two, three years ago. Um, and so 
you, you have very little time. So traditional sock and sim environments and threat hunters maybe aren't, if they're not efficient, if they're not working 24 by seven around the clock, they may not be able to detect that, you know, before they get the lateral movement. And once they get the lateral movement, then, you know, you could get some systems encrypted. You could be forced to go to backup and, uh, and recover. And, and that's a challenge too. I remember just uh, a, a couple short years ago, you know, working with the infrastructure team and saying, we've got to have immutable backups. Must be immutable. It can't be changed. We've got to protect the backups. And uh, we worked really hard to do that. But now, you know, there's this important distinction between air-gapped versus immutable backups. Because if they do get in, if you don't stop them fast enough, if something does get encrypted and now you have to recover, um, uh, they're, they're getting to the operating system on a NAS or on a Linux appliance that these immutable backups are living on and they're going to, and they can wipe those out. And that's happening to, to customers now too. So um, there's just so many layers uh, to manage and try to be on top of. We have to be right 100% of the time. And the adversary just has to get it right once and find that gap. And if you have that gap, uh, then there's a really good chance they're going to exploit it because they're working together now in teams and uh, they're becoming very efficient at what they do. They're buying initial access from somebody that got in and, and was just stealthy and they got in and maybe they even mapped out where some of your servers are at. And then they sell that to somebody mm-hmm. who's really good at, uh, at doing ransomware. So it's a, it's just such a dangerous environment. And, uh, and we, we just have to help everybody in healthcare be right all the time and, and close those gaps and constantly assess them. By the way, I read an article this morning about uh, how they're, they're able to extract data from air gapped devices if they get within six feet using certain. I saw that article. Yeah. Yeah, So air gapping isn't all that. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good, and probably unless you're talking about nation state stuff, I don't think they're they're coming to get the community hospital, you know, in that respect. But let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about the proper use and leveraging of threat intelligence. Um, you know, it, it it's going to help you. You're going to know where the lace. Now, it's not going to help you if you're the first victim, right? Because then maybe the intelligence isn't out yet. Uh, although you've you've helped create it by becoming a victim, but the intelligence gets out there. You get information that something is going on, something is being attacked. Um, what is the proper way? I'm interested in in uh, how that gets operationalized because you could probably do that many different ways. Information comes in. How is it coming in? Is it being reviewed in an automated fashion, or does that require human beings looking at the threat intelligence that come in? And deciding how to move forward, uh, you know, how are we going to make use of that? We don't want to say, oh, it's it, it was, yeah, I read it, but I didn't get to implement it. So, what's the appropriate time delays in implementing certain things, reacting to threat intelligence, and uh, just what's what's some of the best ways to use it? So, Chris, I'm going to start with you. Man, you give me the hardest question. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it, there's not one answer, right? There's multiple answers. Um, you know. What I would tell you, and, and while we've got some really great talented resources, um, having partners that are, you know, deep in the security space doing this every day 
helping to monitor and, and filter that threat intelligence is super important. Um, obviously, we've got a dedicated team that's looking at those those items and prioritizing them and, and based on the situation, uh, determining if that's a, a vulnerability or not. Um, you know, so a strong network of partners is probably the first thing that really have taken time to understand your environment um, and and understand the 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 nature of the threat. Um, there's lots of things you know that that we do day in day out. I mean, privileged accounts, service accounts, um, just you know, control over uh, privileged accounts is is a big deal, and the consequences of 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 changing the architecture of how we manage um, access and administrator access is you'll be terminated, right? I mean, there's there there has to be consequences to our you know the the way that we approach this stuff, um, but uh, it, it really depends. You know, I, that's probably the short answer. Um, we get you know we get a lot of phishing uh, attempts, a lot of whaling attempts. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've become acutely aware of that, you know, the organization as a whole is like, you know, now it's just a, it's a, it's almost a game. It's a go fish game. We have our senior leadership huddle, you know, to who's got the best, you know, fishing story. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, it, but it strong partners is probably, probably the number one answer is as good as my team is, we just, you know, we're a healthcare organization. Yeah. Teresa, you know, it made me think as, as Chris was talking that threat intelligence may come in um, and you say, oh, okay, this is a risk, but is this a risk to me? Do I have this thing? Right. Or like log4j people are like, well, where is it? Do I have it? You know, what's it in? And there's proposals out of something called S bomb software bill of materials. So it's like an ingredients list. So, okay, now I can figure out if I have this thing or not. So just, again, take me through the process of threat intelligence coming in and sort of your thoughts on how best that can be utilized in an efficient way. Um, yeah, sure. So, so earlier your question was around um, what are the processes to kind of ingest, right, those yeah. threat intel. And I think it's a, it's a combination of automation and it's a combination of people. Um, you can get threat intelligence and you can sign up for HISAC and get emails and alerts all day long. But if you <laughs> have a process to monitor that, to make sense of any of those IOCs or TTPs that are being used, it's for none. Um, I would say that at Texas Children's, we, we heavily invest in threat intel, but not just the intel, the processes on ingesting that and making sure all of our security technologies are updated with the, the latest and greatest IOCs, indicators of compromise, if you will. Um, we have, you know, to Chris's point, we can't do it alone. So we may have a large cybersecurity team, but it is a mix of full-time employees and a mix of managed service providers, managed service providers that we feel are in that top quadrant of providing security um, analysts and incident response. Um, so when threat intel comes in, um, based on the technologies that we use and the partnership that we have, all of our 
technologies are updated immediately within 24 hours. So that's an automated process. There's things like log J4 or zero days or out of band kind of vulnerabilities that we actually need to do some manual work on, right? So when log J4 came in, first question is, which applications do we have in our data center have are vulnerable? Second question, how many cloud solutions do we have that have integration into our environment are vulnerable? And are we holding our vendors accountable to making sure that they patch immediately? Because surely we've already, we've already at that point instituted our major incident command within Texas Children's to make sure that everything that we have possession over with LogJ4 is updated appropriately. So we have um, incident response playbooks, if you will, uh, on how to address threats that need manual intervention and work. But again, it depends on the size of the organization, how large your security team is. But in that example of log day four, it wasn't just the security team that was needed to do mitigation. Yeah. yeah, it's your business, it's your downtime procedures, it's your IT solutions team, it's your infrastructure team in some sense, mm-hmm. and it's your third party cloud providers. So I said it would, it took us almost 40 days. And I think to some organizations, that's quick. But to us, we're like, why does it take so long? Like, we didn't want to be vulnerable because it was being exploited in the wild. Um, So we have a risk assessment process on which systems do we tackle first? Things external facing in the DNC, our cloud solutions that store protected health information. And then we start going back into our data center where most organizations are a little bit flat right? Unless there's true zero trust implemented in everyone's data center with micro segmentation, which we know that's a a dream of every CISO and probably every CIO. (laughs) Um, Not everyone's there yet. So we have to take a risk-based approach, especially for the threat intel that we get that requires manual intervention. Excellent. Todd? Yeah, Teresa's spot on. Like, I, I, I really like how she put that. And, and, and we have to keep evolving, right? I mean, in 2015, I had a threat hunter that was leveraging the the Falcon uh, CrowdStrike platform uh, to go out and and look and and respond to incidents and alerts and and do that for me. Um, I didn't have a team of threat hunters and. You know, that person can't work 24 by 7 by 365. But at the time, I felt like we had amazing visibility and the, uh, the, the way that the Falcon platform gave me such great, you know, uh, and my threat hunter, such great visibility. What was happening on the endpoint was fantastic. Well, you know, then fast forward, it's 2018 and and, uh, you know, he's taken all his training and his expertise and he's moved on to somewhere else. And now I've got to find somebody quickly. And and it, it really kind of made me think about it and go, OK, well, maybe maybe I replace that position with something else. And I, I change my level of service with my partner, CrowdStrike, to go to manage detection and respond and let response and let them provide me. 24 by 7 by 365, you know, uh, with, with a guaranteed like 11060 response time, uh, you know, minute to detect, uh, 10 minutes to investigate and 60 minutes to remediate and, and with a guarantee and let them handle that for me. And now we can get to the, to the point where maybe I've got somebody that's really plugged into HISAC and their job is to kind of stay on top of all our risks 
And then as they get threat intelligence, kind of map that to where help us prioritize what we need to do. And you talk about like log4j, like, like Teresa was talking about, and you have all of these archive files that have these critical vulnerabilities in it. Well, and they're all over your network. And how do you find them? And it's like, so we, CrowdStrike released a, a script you can run and scan your environment to go dig in and find where these vulnerabilities are. That's why it takes took so long to remediate log4j. So now you've got this this risk with log4j and the threat that it's being exploited in the wild. So maybe we need to start with what's externally facing and then let's find those and get those systems patched and upgraded. So now you've got a threat person that is understanding the risk in your environment and then receiving threat intelligence and they can focus on helping your team prioritize on where to spend their, their time and their resources because um, you kind of have to respond to what's going on, you know, in, in the wild. And uh, and what are the what are the threats that my organization's operating in today so that we can we can uh, react to them and try to protect ourselves? Of course, if you're the first person attacked with, yeah. with Log4J, it doesn't help you. But no. odds are that's not going to be you. So, right. uh, you know, you can respond to that. Well, it's, it's very interesting uh, at a macro level with the workforce shortage. Um, you know, you talk about losing someone. I think people are losing people all over the place and they can't hire for the positions they have open. We hear about dozens of positions open at individual health systems uh, in security and they can't fill them. So the idea of going to an outside partner may not even be a choice. It may be something you absolutely have to do. Um, but that's really interesting points. I'd like to go to our Ask a Co-Panelist segment. Um, Todd, I'm going to give you the first opportunity to pose a question to one or both of your co-panelists. Sure. Uh, so one of the things that I feel like is a buzzword that gets talked about a lot is XDR, Extended Detection and Response. But I, I feel like this is a... Um, a technology, uh, it's a thought, it's a, a panacea that we want to try to achieve where we make our security tools work together and automate responses. And uh, I guess I, I would just like to ask uh, Chris and Teresa is, what are their thoughts on XDR and how much does that factor into your um, the security decisions and the purchases that you're you're going to be making in the next uh, one to two fiscal years is, is how well are your partners going to work together and how important to you is that? Teresa, you want to jump in? That's a hard question because XDR, I was like, I know about EDR. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> so yeah, I know. <laughs> no, and I've heard about like it's kind of like the the buzzword of zero trust, right? Um, and and XDR, but to ask again your your specific question. Sure. So yeah. So we're we're at CrowdStrike. We're building a uh, a a what we call an extended detection and response response ecosystem, where we actually have like nineteen other security vendors that we've partnered with where we're working on exchanging data two ways so that we can develop automated responses with these partners. You know, if you take your, your internet provider, like a Zscaler or a Netscope, and we're going to share information with them so that we can, uh, they would share with us information about threats uh, on internet traffic going to your cloud 
your mm-hmm. cloud sources, and we're going to share with them endpoint uh, threat intelligence so that, that we can have an, a, a bigger picture of what's happening in your environment and generate some automated responses. And it's something that we're, we're putting a lot of uh, focus on and trying to build. And I feel like we're well positioned to do that. I just, uh, I, I feel like it's a buzzword that's thrown around a lot. And I, I feel like uh, not everybody can do it effectively. So was just curious if that was at top of mind. <laughs> I mean, I would say that our program in cybersecurity never has an end date, and we continue to tell that to our, our board, and they support that. Just reading what's in the news with the emerging threats and the evolution of the sophistication of threat actors, there's not just one and done sign off, your security program is done. So as as the threat actors get more sophisticated and our technology partners um, find ways to better defend and combat the threat actors, new technology solutions, especially those that help with orchestration of alerts and findings within disparate type security technologies is definitely something that um, I think all CISOs would be very interested to learn more about. Um, And especially for those that may not have the investment to have dedicated threat hunters within their environment, like you said, 24 by 7. I mean, we have threat hunting happening for us through a managed service provider, but it's not a, um, it's not one it's not just that one person that, that that makes us feel comfortable, right? It's a combination of all the capabilities that the teams have to offer. So I would say that when organizations like CrowdStrike or you know, similar partners are ready to release an XJR solution and, and show value, um, a lot of times I like to do reference calls as well, like organizations of our same size that have leveraged a new mm-hmm. technology. What are the pros and cons? Um, how's the manageability of that? Keep that technology, right? Uh, will our existing team be able to manage it? Does it need specialized um, experience? Do we need to go through a managed service provider to help manage that? And I think at the end of the day is you're going to send us more alerts, right? So we need to make sure that our teams know what to do with those alerts too, because you don't want to have alert fatigue as well. But the more automation and orchestration that we can do, I'm I'm all in for that. Chris, any thoughts, sir? Yeah, you know, I I do think it's somewhat some branding from some marketing folks. Uh but the the concept, right? I mean, there's there's so many players in the in the security, cybersecurity space, and they each have niche solutions to be able to choreograph that um would be incredibly powerful, right? As I look at our um security solutions. I'm also looking at who are the partners in the market and not just healthcare, right? I'm often I'm looking uh, across uh, different segments to understand where's the maturity of those partners. What are they doing? What services are they providing? Um, Because I just, I'll never be able to build a security team uh, large enough to, to do that or or to have all those skill sets. So I like the idea of orchestration, um, you know, and and alerts and and intelligence is is simply not enough. I, I've got to have orchestration in the environment, um, assessment, orchestration, even the log4j example, 
Um, while I appreciated scripts that could go out there and, and detect it and help us identify it, um, we were really sitting down and prioritizing. It wasn't a big impact for us, but really prioritizing this system is really important. As you said, um, internet facing, you know, public facing, um, these other systems, you know, they can wait. The, the attack surface is fairly small. Uh, so I hope that that helps answer that question. Um, I, you know, I think we've all hoped and wanted and wished that we'd see more security solution consolidation just because, um, you know, it's hard to specialize your team uh, when there's so many applications. Uh, so it, it'll 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 come eventually. I'm just not sure when. Very good. Thank you. All right, Chris, uh, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Gosh, uh, you know, uh, interesting, Todd, you brought up the whole the VM aspects as you start to see some of the cloud um, cloud to cloud solutions that are providing uh, either client um, solutions, uh, server virtualization. How does that how does that architecture become more complex or simplified? And what's your take on that? Yeah, it's it's interesting, um, uh, Chris, because there's uh, a lot more SaaS, right? And uh, you and and, and I, I've talked to many health systems where sometimes they're having a hard time even uh, getting all of the the SaaS uh, inventory under control. And now you you will have you know where maybe some of your SaaS partners are turning on APIs right. to share data between them, and so. I think API security is an interesting and evolving, and there are some players um, in that space. So I, I think uh, API security is important in that cloud to cloud uh, communications. Um, but uh, I'm, I was just kind of uh, interested in uh, recently at HISAC and talking to some SaaS security platforms like, um, like Obsidian that has partnered with us, where we're taking um, intelligence about what's happening on the endpoint and identities in your environment, and then uh, sharing that with a SaaS security uh, uh, provider uh, that that will protect some of these SaaS environments. Because I, I feel like the adversary is getting around MFA and finding weak spots, whether it's an application that's accessing that SaaS environment or a service account or something that maybe doesn't have MFA involved. So I think having security in those cloud environments is really important and forward thinking for CISOs to be concerned about right now and thinking about how they're going to protect um, not only the communications to those applications, but um, the accounts uh, that access them and understand what's normal behavior and react, be able to react and uh, and and put tighter controls or shut an account down if ab abnormal behavior is detected. It's an interesting space. Yeah, oh, you give me a headache. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I was just going to turn everything. You know, I, I I get home and I'm so done with technology. I'm like, just turn it all off. Turn it all off. Yeah. There's never a shortage of areas to look at and go. I know. I know. How am I securing this? 
<laughs> All right, we're we're almost out of time. We're going to go with a little lightning round of final thoughts. The best piece of advice uh, for people that are that are listening to take away uh, someone uh, who's at a comparable sized organization in a comparable position. What's your best advice for them? Chris, we'll go with you first. Yeah, get used to it. Right. I mean, this is this is our environment. Nothing's, you know, it's it's uh, different attack vectors, different methods, but the theme is still the same. Right. This is our new reality. And uh, we got to continue to thread this into our strategic plan. Uh, This is this is what we're going to we're going to live with for a long time. And when you get home from work, turn it all off. Turn it all off. That's your other piece of advice. Off the grid. your best piece of advice? Um, just pay attention to your people, mm-hmm. uh, the people that you highly depend on to make sure you're continuously able to provide a, a resilient IT environment for your for your doctors and nurses and your patients. Um, they work very hard, right? They're 24 by seven and they're constantly expected to keep up with emerging threats and new technologies and explore XDR, right? Zero trust. So um, make sure you're taking good care of them emotionally, health, but then also mm-hmm. work-wise too. Very good advice, Teresa, especially with the workforce situation. Uh, Todd, we'll let you wrap it up. What's your best piece of advice? <sighs> Make sure you have uh, an incident response retainer with a guaranteed response time. Zero dollar retainers are really not worth very much when you have a lot of organizations getting breached at the same time. I mean, think about what Teresa, when she was talking about Log4J, where you had tens of thousands of organizations all getting uh, perhaps compromised at the same time, and you have all of these uh, IR teams that are just completely, you know, booked and not taking any more clients. So make sure you have a guaranteed response time and um, do tabletop drills. Have these conversations with your executives and your board. Make sure that your whole organization is prepared to respond to an incident and a level uh, leverage some uh, some proactive services from your partners to make sure that your organization is prepared for when you might have the worst day of your career and, uh, and just be ready for it. Excellent. Excellent advice. Great uh, note to finish on regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank our panel very much. Chris Paravati, Teresa Tonthat, and Todd Felker. And I want to tag CrowdStrike and TD Cynics Public Sector for sponsoring and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.